0: Robert Kennedy Jr. surges, the White House press corps mingles, and the Republican reaction against Ukraine fizzles, at least for now. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of the editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National podcast. Our sponsors this episode are ExpressVPN and the Thinking Fellows podcast from 1517.org. More about both of them and do course. If for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, Robert Kennedy, got in the race a little while ago and has had some eye-popping poll numbers, 19%, 21%. He's at 20%. And the RCP average and against an incumbent president who is is not going to uh, get any uh, more serious challengers depending on how you define Robert Kennedy Jr. What do you make of it?
1: I am not eagerly welcoming Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to the presidential race. Obviously I'm not a Democrat so I don't particularly have any uh, dog in this fight. I have pointed out that Joe Biden is elderly and declining And arguably, barely capable, if he is capable of handling the duties now, there's no reason to think he'll be in any better shape a year from now, two years from now, or, you know, conceivably, five and a half years from now. Um, Kennedy has said some crazy things in his time, right? Uh, He said, you know, government surveillance today, uh, even in Hitler's Germany, you could cross the Alps to Switzerland. You could hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. <clears throat> that was the Netherlands. That was not in Germany. But anyway, the mechanisms are being put in place that will make it so that none of us can run and none of us can hide. And of course, people pointed out, you really shouldn't be telling Americans that they've got it hard compared to Anne Frank. Uh, you probably should avoid Holocaust comparisons entirely. Um, he you know, compared the autism in vaccines to the Holocaust. He said COVID vaccinations are part of a plan to make you a slave. Uh, the high, you know, five G high speed transmission uh, towers are part of the plan to harvest our data and control our behavior. And oh, by the way, Sirhan Sirhan did not kill his father. Robert F. Kennedy is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and I can't say the idea of him getting you know twenty some percent in a Democratic primary makes me feel good. Makes me feel you know, it might have some short term benefits to the Republican Party, but I can't say, "Go R F K Junior, go." I want more sanity in American politics, not less. I don't like insanity, even if it complicates life for the Biden administration, because in the end, insanity comes back and bites all of us in the butt. Um, Now, that having been said, I will note, and this is kind of an early editor's pick, I did come around when I read your, uh, your piece, Rich, on when ABC News decided to censor him. Uh, and say, well, he said a lot of things about vaccines that aren't true, so we're not going to show you that part of the, the interview. I think you made a very good point that's kind of like, you know, well, we're not going to show you what Trump said about the wall. <laughs> we're not going to tell you about what Bernie Sanders said about socialism. Anti-vaccine positions are like the, the, you know, they're the heart and soul of the identity of Robert Kennedy Jr. It's probably one of the reasons he's at the level of support he is. Um, so I can come around to the idea that if you're going to show it, the right thing we need to do is to, you know, show his comments and then fact check him. In whatever form you deem appropriate, and point out, you know, the nonsense he's spewing. Uh, otherwise, I don't see a real, you know, reason to say yay. Uh, crazy! Cons- another crazy conspiracy theorist mm-hmm. is jumping into the presidential Just race. Just what we need. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, no, that ABC News interview I, I thought was fascinating. I think Kennedy is a man of substance, even if he is a conspiracy theorist. And there's this debate about what his. you know, fifth of of the Democrats uh, supporting him in polls, what that means? Is that just name ID? Uh, I think that's a a big element of it. Is it uh, support for his positions? And what makes him most distinct in the Democratic Party is very anti-vaccine. You used to be in accord with the left, still, still, perhaps is, but that element of left-wing opinion has been suppressed. Whereas the right has been asking questions about uh, vaccines and spreading conspiracy theories about the vaccines. Whereas Democrats have been saying, you know, you guys are are idiots and you didn't trust everyone who has a, a white lab coat. And he's very opposed to the Ukraine war because he's he's anti neocon and an anti interventionist. Also, you know, tr- traditional left-wing opinion that also has been suppressed. The last several years, so uh, that's another theory that this is this is left wingers just attracted to to Kennedy's views, and then finally, and and you know none of these are necessarily mutually exclusive. Finally, it could just be a symptom of Joe Biden's sheer weakness.
2: It's probably all of the above. I've heard a lot of people because I wrote about this for the website and I was promoting it. A lot of uh, prominent. left-friendly members of the press dismissed it as, oh, well, it's just really high name recognition. And once people find out what a kooky is, his support will collapse. And I'm thinking, where have I heard that before? Um, If you really examine, like, a lot of the stuff he says in his positions, the guy is a throwback to what the Democratic identity was before Trump and indeed his ascension to the degree that he has ascended. Uh, reveals the extent to which the Democratic identity in the Trump years is is of recent vintage and probably a fabrication. This is the party of science, we were told, right? Well, there's a significant portion of the Democratic base that is kind of friendly to Andrew Wakefield's infamous 1998 study where he established a causal link between an MMR vaccine and and autism. What was the friendliest state in the country to vaccine skepticism in the pre-Trump era? It was California. And why? Because it was responding to its constituencies, uh, many of whom were uh, liberal, white, educated, affluent elites who were skeptical of vaccines. Uh, the party of democracy, truth, for example. Truth, as Jim said, half a dozen other conspiracy theories that this guy believes, which isn't all that distinct from a lot of the stuff that was floating around in the Bush era. George W. Bush's complicity in 9-11 attacks, Halliburton's influence over U.S. politics, die voting machines, and even 2016, the Russian interference in the election, Conspiracy theories are not alien to the Democratic base, and as you know, to the extent that this guy's a conspiracy theorist, it sort of channels a particular, a particular sensibility in the Democratic, um, a vestigial element of the Democratic uh, worldview that is deeply mistrustful of institutions that perceives themselves to be outside institutions. The Democratic uh, conception of itself as a defender of institutions is relatively new, and indeed. RFK Jr. was Time Magazine's um, uh, heroes for change and one of Rolling Stone's top 100 agents of change in the 2000s because he was so aggressively environmentalist yeah. that he wanted to suspend the protections of the First Amendment for institutions that he disagreed with, sort of yeah. mockingly uh, calling for the jailing of climate deniers. And I mean, and this channel is almost that.
0: opposed to almost every form of energy, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I
2: mean, anti but like this channel is a very elemental uh aspect of the left-wing progressive liberal identity that they've that they've had to tamp down in the trump era in order to establish a negative uh partisan uh dynamic here but if it's all negative partisanship it's very weak
0: yeah so charlie if you add up the kennedy vote and the marianne williamson vote you almost not quite there but you almost get a third of democrats correct
3: I wish to associate myself with the comments made by Senator Garrity of Authenticity Woods. (laughs) Kennedy is a kook and he should be treated as such. But that's really irrelevant in that I do not get to decide who is the nominee of the Democratic Party or alas, who is the nominee of the Republican Party. What I am most interested in in here is the gap, the space, the lacuna into which Kennedy and Marianne Williamson have driven. I understand all of the arguments as to why this might be the case. Name recognition. Kennedy is a famous name. Marianne Williamson ran last time. But name recognition alone does not explain. 30% of Democrats asked... Replying someone other than Biden. If in 1984, someone with high name recognition had challenged President Reagan, we would not have seen 20% of Republican primary voters jumping to their side, let alone 30% if you add in one of the losers from the 1980 primary. This does tell us something about Joe Biden. I think I've been through on this podcast, the history of challenges to sitting presidents. It is not pretty for the sitting president once anyone gets above 10%, let alone 20, let alone 30 for two candidates in combination. The last time that happened was in 1992. That president lost. It did not happen to Trump, whose only challenger, Bill Weld, maxed out at 2%. It didn't happen to Obama at all. It didn't happen to George W. Bush, and it didn't happen to Bill Clinton. 30% is enormous. And if it continues, whatever the reason for it, if it continues, it's going to hurt Biden and hurt him for reasons that Noah lays out. Again, I hear people say Democrats stick together. They vote together. Maybe. But the reason that this stuff matters is that it highlights or reveals or creates fissures within the ruling party's coalition. Now, if this is just a matter of Biden being weak, that matters. If this is a matter of 30% of the Democratic Party remembering that the party is supposed to be the home for hippies, that matters. It also matters because it sends a signal to independents. We all expect to hear from the party that is out of power that the president is doing a bad job people discount that independents discount that they come to their own conclusions but when you start to hear it from people who belong to the party of the president it hits much harder and i think that if robert f kennedy is saying appealing things and if he decides to go hard after Biden is going to make Biden who is already weak a lot less uh, a lot less uh, powerful and potent in his re-election campaign and i think this is really one of the most important stories in america right now and that it is being underplayed mm-hmm. in the press
0: yeah so so far at least judging from that abc news interview i've i Confession, I've not paid a huge amount of attention to Robert F. Kennedy's other media appearances, but it's kind of a fond take on Joe Biden. You know, it wasn't anti-Biden at, at all. It's kind of a, a broader message. But, Noah, let's uh, talk a little bit more about these ideological currents. What do you make of the, the overlap between Robert Kennedy's worldview and... And to take the highest profile representative of uh, uh, outside of politics of the uh, populist nationalist take on the world, Tucker Carlson, Um, anti-corporate, both of them highly distrustful of authority, uh, attracted to conspiracy theories. But then there are a lot of differences, obviously, as as well. Uh, What what should we make of that aspect of this?
2: Well, I might repeat myself a little bit, but. To the extent that there's sort of a baseline psychological affinity there, it is insofar as these people conceive of themselves as being outside institutions, locked out of institutions, belittled by institutions, and generally underserved by an establishmentarian consensus in the country. Um, It is the point of view that sees not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties, right? And that used to be a conventionally liberal outlook in the 20th century, in the early 21st century. Um, Even when Republicans were uh, on the back foot electorally, they had a conservative ethos that perceived themselves to be the defenders of the foundations upon which institutions were built. Uh, And that began to erode in the Trump era, in part because Donald Trump didn't share those sensibilities. And why didn't he share those sensibilities? He was a Democrat for most of his adult life, shared liberal sensibilities, conventional liberal sensibilities, sort of a working class um, uh, New Deal type Democrat to a certain degree. Um, And when that affinity became something that Republicans had to embrace, or easily embraced rather... Um, they, per- they perceive they perceived themselves to be outside institutions. They perceived themselves to be underserved by institutions, banging on the door, trying to get in. And Democrats reconceived of themselves as defenders of institutions um, in 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 kind of an unfamiliar way from the outlook of somebody who came of age in the twentieth century as a as a left liberal. So if there's a through line there, it is insofar as they it's not a persecution complex per se. But they don't perceive themselves to be well served by the consensus, and which isn't a conservative outlook. Um, it's actually fundamentally anti-conservative.
0: So, Jim Garrity, <clears throat> X question to you. Let's double barrel it. Robert Kennedy Jr. will top out in the polls at what number?
1: My instinct is to say high twenties. If you need a specific number, I'll pick. No, 20. Oh, I need a specific number. All right, tw- I'll go 28, and twenty-eight. I'll go. I'll do you one more though, since you're you're yep. demanding mm-hmm, lots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Williamson will. It's in some poll between now and the end of the campaign will hit double digits. Um, won't be so, consistent. Won't be you know all the time, and it may not be at the same time as RFK Jr. hitting his. Height.
0: All right, I like so so. Let's let's go. I'm going to triple barrel all this um, since since you draw me into it, Jim. First of all, twenty-eight is the number. I have written literally on the back of the envelope here. <clears throat> so we're in accord. It's going to be 28%. Will Biden in the RCP average and the polling averages ever dip below 50%? He's at 66 now.
1: Yeah. Among Democrats?
0: Yeah. No. No. Charlie Cook.
3: So there are three questions now.
0: Well, there, there are two, and there's another one coming. So <laughs> – uh, Kennedy will, will top out at what number and will Biden dip below 50 in the averages?
3: I could see Kennedy getting to 35%. Oof. I don't believe I don't believe that the Democrats really believe their current position on Ukraine and vaccines and the FBI. I think it is an artifact of the Trump era which will persist if Trump is the nominee again, but not forever. And I believe that although I regret this for the same reason I regret Trump's influence on the right, that RFK Junior is tapping into something very real in the way Noah has described. I think it will reach thirty five percent.
0: So Biden could could conceivably dip below fifty in that scenario. Will he? Well, no, but I only think that because I
3: think he's going to bottom out at fifty three or fifty four or somewhere okay.
0: around there. So that'd be astonishing to have you know Biden at fifty four. <laughs> kennedy at 35 <laughs> i that would be I think
3: you're gonna get a perfect storm of joe biden's weakness concerns about his age the resurgence of a very real part of traditional left-wing politics and the fact that and again he's a kook you're right he's smooth he doesn't sound like a kook He's a Kennedy. He looks like a Kennedy. He talks like a Kennedy. He just happens to be crazy.
0: Noah.
2: I'm going to go out on a limb and undermine my entire position and say that RFK Jr. tops out at 24% in one poll, which is dismissed as an outlier, uh, in part because negative partisanship in our political physics is the strongest force in nature. It's the centrifugal force that compels everybody to their own corners. And all of Democrats' engines, media, political, societal, cultural, will, if he presents himself as a real threat, turn on the guy. Not because of his views, mm-hmm. but because of the um, assist that he gives to Donald Trump. And that will be,
1: yeah. be helped
2: by the fact that a lot of nationalist Republican-inclined uh, commenters will be uh, giving the guy a little, a little once-over. Um, And that will be a distasteful to the traditional Democratic electorate.
0: If he popped to 35, the the media would totally turn on him. Not not that they're particularly favorable now, but there would be an effort to destroy him.
3: But it might not work, Rich. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that the media was always trying to destroy Donald Trump back in 2015. Certainly, it enjoyed talking about him and unfortunately many people watched those segments and said actually i like the guy i'm not convinced it will work especially if one of rfk juniors messages which i believe it is is i'm being censored the media is telling you what to think etc cetera, etc cetera. i could see it
0: backfiring but that's another message that you know it, it just has a more inherent appeal now to republicans than to democrats
2: if democrats uh... define themselves as institutional defenders Yes, would, but I think that's elite-driven.
3: we are we to go are going to go back to the previous segment. I know we have mm-hmm. to move on, but that is an elite are phenomenon. The elites are really good at signalling to their own party what to think and say, but there is a certain point at which that stops working. And i not just not convinced that what the Democratic Party says it stands for is actually what the rank and file members of the Democratic if
0: So, scenario if your scenario came true, Charlie. Fifty four thirty five 35 in, in some poll or in the averages, that'd be as, as close as you could come to like losing the nomination without losing a primary. It would be so yeah embarrassing.
3: But it's not that unusual. It hasn't happened for a while because after 1992, both parties recognized the pattern. The pattern being that in 1992, in 1980, in 1976 the party that had hosted a serious challenge, some of which got up to 40, 45% with Reagan against Ford, mm-hmm. lost. I mean, it's it, there are certain moments in politics where parties say, ah. For example, in 2000, when Gore lost Tennessee, whether or not this was correct, the Democratic Party decided that focusing on gun control was costing it. And it stopped for a while. Now, it's back on that train. It has been since Barack Obama's second term. But that was internalized and it was acknowledged and it led to a shift. Well, both parties after 1992 did everything they could to tamp down internal dissent. There are many reports that Barack Obama was nearly challenged by Bernie Sanders in 2012 and the Democrats prevailed upon the guy to wait. What I'm saying is it's just not that unusual to see someone else polling within the primary electorate against the sitting president of his own party at 30 or 40%. It's mm-hmm. just that we haven't seen it for a while.
0: Yeah, so I'm, I'm not quite where you are. As I said, I'm with Jim at 28. But I just think that the physics here are with such a weak incumbent, with so much sentiment um, against his running again, that just the natural political physics, no matter who it is, uh, is going to give that alternative um, some, some spring. In a step. So the third part of the triple barrel question, Jim, is Biden will at some point have to debate Robert Kennedy Jr. Yes or no? No. Charlie.
3: No, that will make him look even weaker. So he'll avoid it at all costs.
0: No. No.
2: I mean, no. I'm trying to imagine what the conditions would be that would compel him to get on a debate stage. It would have to be to like
0: debate. Kennedy leading him in the polls or something like yeah, that. It would
2: have to be really catastrophic, <laughs> and long. they'd rather cancel debates entirely, yeah. the, and, and primaries entirely, than than concede to that.
0: Yeah, uh, I'll make it unanimous. The answer is no with that. Charlie, let's, let's go to you for a message from our first sponsor, ExpressVPN.
3: Express VPN, which I use myself, have installed on all my devices, has got a real workout recently because I've been traveling so much over the last month. And when I travel, I flick on Express VPN on my devices because we are living in an era in which powerful interests like to push their agenda and like to co-opt both the government and big tech companies to do so. Uh, in some cases, in ways that infringe upon our privacy rights and even our free speech rights. Well, I don't want that to happen. And as a result, I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN hides my IP address, my DNS requests, all of my traffic. It tunnels it to a set of servers around the world, whichever server is closest to you. You should use, and it anonymizes all of my activity on the internet by using secure VPN servers. ExpressVPN encrypts 100 of my network traffic for protection from hackers and eavesdroppers, and even better for protection against big tech companies that track what I do online, look what I'm searching for, what videos I'm watching, and everything. I click, this stops them and anyone else from matching my activity to my true identity using the IP addresses uh, my devices adopt. And it's easy to use. All you have to do is click the one button in the app. You tap it, it's on, you're protected. It's simple. And that's why it is the number one rated VPN by CNET and TechRadar. And when I'm traveling, especially, I never go online without it. So if you want to... Prevent big tech, big government, some random hacker from looking at, controlling, collating your information. You can defend your rights and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash editors. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash editors. And if you do so, you'll get three months free.
0: Thanks so much, Charlie. So, Jim Garrity, the Washington Correspondents' Dinner was this past weekend. None of us were in Attendance. It long ago became a totally uh, insufferable uh, self congratulatory event for political and journalistic insiders who are all basically, at the end of the day, the same. People, um, one of my favorite episodes. I saw a clip on Twitter, John Legend and Christy Teigen walking into the hotel and Christy Teigen, who I don't pay much attention to her politics. Uh, maybe she'll get in the Democratic race and be popping eight or nine percent like <laughs> everyone else, but apparently it's a major leftist. You know, four people carrying the the train of her dress, the sheer dress, while she was walking into the hotel until she safely got on the red carpet or whatever colored carpet it was. And the the journalist, uh, Dooley, were, were very charmed by the President of the United States, who they're supposed to be holding accountable and laughed at jokes about how he never takes their questions.
1: Yeah. So before we dive into that, I just want to observe that there was a time back, I guess, during probably the Bush years where National Review would host a cocktail party before the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And back when I was first starting here, this place was kind enough to have me invite me. Got to hobnob with celebrities, including back during the heyday of the television show 24, running into the actor, Xander Berkeley, who played one of Jack Bauer's helpers, George Mason. And I go over to him. And I say, oh, I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you very much. And he must say, ah, well, in that case, you should meet my wife. I turn around, and it is actress Sarah Clark, who's known for playing Nina Myers, the most evil character in the whole wide world, who was always killing people, beheading them, all that kind of stuff. And for a split second, I see it, and I think, oh, my God, Nina's here. (laughs) And I panic. (laughs) Then I find out that Sarah Clark's parents went on a National Review cruise. So, Rich, that's why we we should go. You never know when you're (laughs) going to get an inadvertent celebrity endorsement of attending national review cruises.
0: It was um, I used to enjoy going in the, in the 90s, you know, when I was a, a young reporter in Washington, it was just kind of a big party. I mean, it's still insular and ridiculous even then, but it hadn't reached the the level of ridiculousness it has since achieved with all the the, the celebrities who uh, uh, you know, know know nothing about politics and you know make it like no. a, a level Hollywood type event, which it which it, 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 it wasn't was the kind of, yeah
1: it was the kind of weird event where you'd see like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff talking with like NFL pros mm-hmm. and Hollywood Star. It was weird combinations of people, and you could see fame famous people from one walk of life ooing and awing over someone from another different walk of life. Uh, no, but that comment from Biden stuck in my craw, and you know many of us observed, have observed that Biden does not do a lot of press conferences. He very rarely does solo press conferences. He does a couple of ones with some visiting head of state. When he does that, there's only a handful of questions, and we went apparently in the last episode. You guys talked about Biden's cheat sheet. Um, and Biden doesn't do a lot of sit-down interviews. So when Biden jokes, hey, I'm going to talk for 10 minutes and then I'm going to take no questions. <laughs> Dear White House Correspondents, why are you laughing at this? Because he's laughing at how he doesn't have to answer your questions. The joke is at your expense. The joke is about how he has made you irrelevant during his presidency. This should make you mad, White House Correspondents. You should not be, <laughs> oh, that Joe Biden, he's incorrigible. Um, and, you know, the, the White House press corps could make a bigger issue out of the fact that Biden so rarely does, uh, you know, press conferences. He, the White House defense is that he does a lot of sit-down interviews. And what they mean is he does sit-down interviews with folks like Drew Barrymore, who, by the way, I have seen at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and who I don't know that she was stoned. <laughs> I suspect she was stoned. Anyway, um, but, you know, and like you know, the softball interviews with daytime talk show hosts is not – The traditional sit-down interview. It's not serious journalism. That's not serious, hardball questions. That represents Biden ducking his interactions with the press and answering questions. And that, oh, by the way, a guy who promised it was going to be the most transparent administration ever. And we all know why this is the case. We all know why that when Biden does these press conferences or does these sit-down interviews, you never know when you're going to get a. "Eh, That was four or five days ago, man. Uh, Regarding Afghanistan. Right. Or, you know, uh, even when he's doing a speech and not taking questions, there's always a chance that he will blurt out, you know, only if it's a minor incursion or, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Joe Biden can't control what he says. Nobody has any idea what he's going to say at any given moment. If a thought pops into his head, he blurts it out, regardless of what the consequences are. That is what happens when you have an 80-year-old man as president. And guess what? He's not going to get any better a year from now or a year and a half from now when people start voting. Or uh, if he's reelected, he's going to not get any better in the second term. Everybody knows this. Everybody can see this. But somehow the White House correspondents are completely comfortable to just pretend that this is a perfectly normal circumstance. And the president's just shy. That's all.
0: So Charlie, I, I don't know anything about Matt Viser. I might be saying his last name wrong. Washington Post reporter, but he got a, a big award at the Correspondents' Dinner for a coverage of the Biden family. And of course, the coverage was how uh, how what a strong figure Joe Biden's brother is, and how uh, how much the Catholic faith means to the the family. And you know, he goes up there and shakes. Biden's hand warmly and it it was just such a crazy juxtaposition because I mean there's so many stories to be done about the Biden family and this wouldn't be in your top 10 list if you're actually interested in speaking truth to power but it's the uh, uh, report reportage that got recognized at the dinner but they're not interested in
3: speaking truth to power they're interested in helping the Democratic Party if I wanted to illustrate for Americans who are mercifully not as plugged into the news as I am why I and it seems 80% now of the public hate the press and consider it to be corrupt to the core. All I would do is show them the video of that dinner. Biden makes a joke. It's not at the expense of the press. I take Jim's point. It should be at the expense of the press. But that joke's not at the expense of the press because the press doesn't see itself as having an adversarial relationship with Joe Biden because Joe Biden is a Democratic president. The press is helping Joe Biden get away with precisely what Joe Biden was describing. That was a boast, but it wasn't a taunt. He wasn't taunting the people in the room. He was boasting to them that he understands the nature of their relationship. The Matt Weiser Award fulfilled the same role. It's not just, as you say, that it was a puff piece, that it focused in on something that to the average person is and should be irrelevant, that the winning piece did not have to do with Biden's illegal, knowingly illegal flouting of the Supreme Court or the strange behavior of his family, or his it's seeming totally inability to work a normal day, it's that if that piece had been written about a Republican president, it would have yielded all manner of well-publicized freakouts about theocracy. Just imagine what would happen if the most important piece about George Bush or Ronald Reagan or about how important their Christian faith was to them and how it defined them and how it was the wind beneath their presidency. Do we think that it would be cast in this light, or do we think it would be the thesis of a documentary, Jesus Land or some such? I find the whole thing revolting. My only regret about the event is that there was no friendly drone in the sky to take Mm -hmm. them all out halfway Mm -hmm. through.
0: So if you could take out one piece of one building or piece of infrastructure in American Life, Charlie, would it be... Uh, commuter rail or the the Hilton Hotel while it was hosting the White House Correspondent Well,
3: can I drive an explosive laden train into
0: the hotel? Uh-huh. Uh, all right. So we're obviously just just kidding, just joking. Noah
2: so I kind of unplugged during the weekends and I really had no idea that the White House Correspondents Center was coming up. And then on Monday. I replug in a little bit, you know, early on, and then by the evening, I'm I'm fully in. So I'm seeing pictures of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, in in the form of what are you wearing? You know, people like showing up and and in you know very complex, uh, unique uh, formal wear. But it also corresponded with the Met Gala, which has the same phenomena, and I could not distinguish the two, having just dropped into this from space. There's there's very little distinction between the Met Gala and the White House Correspondents Association dinner. Um, the White House Correspondents dinner, Association dinner serves a valuable purpose during Republican administrations because it demonstrates that they're still committed to adversarial coverage and they congratulate themselves on being so adversarial. Uh, it doesn't serve that purpose during Democratic administrations, which is an indictment of the entire institution and why it should be scuttled and it should have been scuttled a long time ago. But... It does show that they understand that they're all in on the gag, right? Everybody knows this unspoken commitment to being very aggressive when a Republican is in the White House and leaning back a little bit when a Democrat is in the White House, which renders it all the more corrupt. And back to our negative partisanship as being the defining feature of of public life, they also don't care because they don't have to care. There are no consequences for behaving this way from the constituencies media serves, which is not average readers anymore. One of the jokes that was made from the dais by this comedian was that paywalls uh, on, in media venues are uh, perhaps a, a threat to the democratic process because, you know, there's real information behind that paywall, but a conspiracy theory is free. And the point is well-made, and I take it. But it also suggests that the enterprise itself is not viable. If you can't generate a profit from this business, then who are you serving? And honestly, if you're, you can get your conspiracy for free anywhere. Um, so they're reaching a, narrow, a narrower and narrower audience, an audience that knows what it wants, and the individuals in this industry are willing to give them what they want. Um, it's, a, it's an increasingly corrupt enterprise, and the public knows it, obviously. It's demonstrated in these polls. And worse, they appear to know it, too. Uh, I don't think it's, this is a sustainable trajectory in which this institution
0: is on. Jim Garrity, the next Republican president, will attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner, yes or no? <sighs> Unlikely. Charlie Cook.
3: Is the next Republican president able to end it for good? No. Just boycott it.
2: <laughs> no. Uh, I don't think so, but it depends. But I don't think so. Um, they, if they did attend, they should rhetorically light the place on fire. I think that would be a very beneficial thing for a Republican president to do. Get up there and not do the Al Smith dinner routine, but really singe the hair on everybody in that room. Um, that would get their hockles up, they would be defensive, they probably wouldn't abandon the institution. But I think you could you could deal what would eventually be a mortal blow in that kind of setting.
0: So, I don't think Trump ever went as president, right? So, he wouldn't go. DeSantis not as president now. Yeah, DeSantis isn't going to go. I guess you could imagine other Republicans going, but I kind of doubt it. So I am a no with that. Let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, the Thinking Fellow's podcast from 1517.org. Both Christianity and liberalism has significantly influenced American liberty and civil life. Jay Gresham Machen famously stated, "The chief trouble with liberalism as we have been indicating, is that it is not Christianity. His book, Christianity and Liberalism, now celebrating its 100th anniversary, exposes the tension between Christian theology and progressive ideology, we invite you to join the Thinking Fellows podcast as they take a deep dive into Machen's work and discuss how these worldviews impact our lives today. The Thinking Fellows will bring their signature fun and conversational approach to important ideas and philosophy, Christian history, and apologetics. Don't miss out on this exciting new series. Subscribe to the Thinking Fellows podcast on your podcast platform of choice, perhaps the one you're listening on right now, brought to you by 1517.org and the 1517 Podcast Network. Please check it out. So, Noah, it seemed when Ron DeSantis answered the Ukraine questionnaire from Tucker Carlson, characterizing the uh, war as a territorial dispute, that he was reflecting a major sea chain a change in republican opinion on ukraine and he would actually feed it he ended up backing off and it was clear that the territorial dispute line was a mistake then you had kevin mccarthy at some point i guess during the campaign saying no no blank checks for ukraine which i, I was actually You know, literally is a a reasonable position, but was interpreted as catering to the anti-interventionist position on the the war. You had McCarthy on this trip to Israel getting asked uh, by a Russian reporter. About uh, Ukraine and saying, well, you you, you don't support, you know, aiding Ukraine is like, you're wrong. I do support aiding Ukraine. I don't support what your country has done uh, to Ukraine. And you also had this letter circulating for quite some time. I think I heard about it, you know, two months ago or something. Um, urging a cutoff of support for Ukraine or drastically limiting our commitment. And was something of a fizzle. Just got a couple uh, senators, sort of the usual suspects, and several members of the House. So where are we on the Ukraine debate on the right right now?
2: Well, those who interpreted um, Kevin McCarthy's remarks and Steve Scalise's remarks and others in leadership who have said – You know, just kind of passing comments about how the Ukrainian cause was just, but no blank check, interpreted that that remark with a real lack of guile that I think had to be deliberate um, because it was so obvious an attempt to thread a needle between the imperative, the national security imperative, and sentiments on the nationalist right to which Republicans with national ambitions cater. Um, perhaps unduly, but they feel inclined that they have to cater to them. Um, The letter that you mentioned, which uh, urged the administration to uh, back off its support for Ukraine, um, just presumably so that you could engineer some sort of a peace, which would not be forthcoming. They never actually identify how the fighting stops. They just say America should cease its support, at which point I imagine they think that fighting would cease it would not it would get worse and would probably progress closer to nato's border which doesn't necessarily advance anybody's interest but there are only 19 people signed their names and yeah a lot of as you say usual suspects the republicans in congress who don't support the ukrainian cause would have been done uh, would have served their cause better by preserving some ambiguity about what their numbers are kevin mccarthy's remark in israel when he was asked by an RA and novosti reporter uh, if he actually would pare back support, and he re- gave a rather definitive denunciation of Russia's actions and said he did support Ukraine, is the least we can expect. Um, and in part because Ukraine is not losing. After the Discord leaks, you had a lot of nationalist commenters saying, well, this is it. You know, Americans really, American sources are just lying to you. They think Ukraine is losing this war. But you have to deny the evidence of your own eyes to support that position. We just got evidence yesterday from uh, the administration that suggests the defense of Bakhmut, which is this particular city in Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, that has been the cause of consternation for the administration. They've been asking Ukrainians to back off of it to some defensible position somewhere else that they can't really define. Um, But Ukraine held fast, prevented Russia from breaking through any of its defensive lines, not just in Bakhmut, but but around the entire uh, Donbass line of contact. And apparently 100,000 Russians have been either killed or wounded in that conflict.
0: Yeah, it was supposed eventually, to fall two months ago or something.
2: Eventually, you're going to have—people who, who are married, wedded to the idea that Ukraine is eventually going to lose this conflict are going to have to have a Russian victory at some point to support that view. They don't have it. They haven't had it. And yet the view persists. Now, we're coming up in advance of this spring offensive that everybody anticipates. I think you're going to have to wait a month, maybe a month and a half before that happens. The ground has to harden. But we've seen them break through the lines before. And when they break through the lines, it's not as though you get a little bulge. The whole line collapses and retreats. And if there's a southern offensive that breaks through the line and isolates the Crimean Peninsula, the entire dynamic of this conflict changes. And very few have entertained what that dynamic would look like in that eventuality. Americans like an underdog. They don't like to support uh, imperialist powers that are conducting genocidal campaigns of ethnic cleansing. And people who have positioned themselves against Ukraine, even when it beats all the odds against a clearly morally uh, deficient exercise in just might makes right, are not going to be on the winning side of American public opinion.
0: So, Jim, Kevin McCarthy, one of his strengths, obviously, is uh, pretty shrewdly managing the Republican caucus and and counting votes. And he's not beyond uh, shoring up his right or pandering to the right, depending on how you look at it. You know, giving Tucker Carlson the January sixth tapes would be an example. Of that, But this is – here clearly he doesn't feel as though he's going to be overwhelmed by a tsunami of Republican opinion going the other way and or feels uh,
1: you know, sincerely that this is the right position. I will say if you are a traditional hawkish Republican or if your instincts leaned in the hawkish direction until let's say the tail end of the Obama years, which happens to coincide with the rise of Donald Trump then US for, the US foreign policy under Trump and Trump's intermittent praise for Putin about how, how shrewd he is and the general anti-Ukrainian perspective on the part of the nationalist right really is kind of alienating and strange and against your instincts. We all know anybody with a functioning conscience can see Vladimir Putin is the villain in this story. I'm not going to say Vladimir Zelensky is you know, flawless. I'm sure he's got his problems. But between these two, Like there's one guy who's standing up for the right things and there's one guy who's standing up for the wrong things. So I kind of wonder if what we saw from McCarthy when asked by a Russian reporter that like a whole lot of pent up frustration and a whole lot of pent up anger about Russia and about how whether, whether McCarthy maybe felt restrained about what he could say and do either because of a loud segment of his caucus or maybe because he's afraid Tucker Carlson would tear into him as a crazed warmonger. At 8 p.m. on Fox News, whatever it was, I think we got you know Kevin McCarthy uh, unleashed, uh, unfiltered, right? I think that was. I don't think there was any contrivance to that. I think that's how Kevin McCarthy really feels that way. I think he genuinely hates you know Vladimir Putin's guts and he hates what Russia's doing in Ukraine. And it probably felt good to let that out and to say, "You guys are bastards, and you guys are going to lose." Now, this doesn't change the fact that the U.S. has got a you know unnervingly high shortfall in things like the high-mobility artillery rocket system, uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles, Stinger anti-air defense. Like, you know, It's going to take us years to rebuild this. I think it's reasonable to say, hey, Ukraine, we can't give you anything we can't spare. That said, all the other stuff, ammunition, the M1A tanks, you know, F-16, we can give you all that kind of stuff. We can give you all anything we're not running short of, we will be happy to give to you guys. Go kick their butts. I could have used other words. I guess I should keep it clean on this podcast you know, and good luck. And every every Russian soldier you kill is one less Russian soldier we have to worry about in the future. NATO's job is going to get easier and easier as as this war continues. Um, so I do kind of wonder whether this is just a, uh, short-term outburst and that, you know, McCarthy's going to come back and, uh, the member, the, you know, as you said, surprisingly small, at least outward members of this caucus are going to, uh, uh, are, are going to have this and also like you know there are people who are pro-ukraine but who as i pointed out there are realistic questions about what we can continue to supply to ukraine and i don't think that makes you anti-ukraine or pro-russian or a putin apologist or anything mm-hmm. like that
0: yeah that's definitely true although a lot of the stuff we're giving them uh, we're not giving them the, the the stuff you would think you'd need in a conflict with china over taiwan you know anti-ship missiles for instance but uh charlie
3: Well, as I said about the Democratic Party and Robert F. Kennedy, I am not at all convinced that the rank-and-file Republican voter, the habitual Republican voter, is a skeptical toward the war in Ukraine as figures who influence and have an outsized voice on the right would have us believe. In fact, if you go back a few months, the support for Ukraine among Republicans was overwhelming. That has dropped. That's a function of two things, I think. One is that the war has dragged on, and that does matter. The second is that various people who have big microphones have said that we shouldn't be helping, or we shouldn't be helping as much. Now, leave aside the policy implications. I am uncertain on much of this myself. I could see a situation in which if Republican leaders and public figures start to say the opposite, we go back to where we were. I can see a situation in which it becomes clear that Republican skepticism toward helping Ukraine against Russia was the product of elite signaling, and negative polarization. And I wonder if McCarthy senses this. I wonder if McCarthy feels as if this skepticism has gone too far and wants to push back against it. I wonder if he feels as if the strength of feeling on this topic amongst all but the most uh, angry figures is pretty shallow. Uh, And that there is now an opportunity to shape the Republican message, especially ahead of an election year, in a way that is more palatable to independent voters and less online Republican voters, and that he took it.
0: Jim, Gary, I asked a question to you. In the short, medium term here, Republican sentiment in support of the Ukraine war will increase, stabilize... Or
1: erode, uh, stabilize. I think it'll be about the same. But by the time we get to like midsummer of late summer, if there are big Ukrainian wins, then a lot of skepticism will be conveniently forgotten.
0: Noah, um,
1: I'm sorry.
2: What was the, the question? So will, sure. will
0: Republican sentiment get stronger on you uh, in support of the Ukraine war? Stabilize or weaken?
2: So the question is hard to answer because it's Republican sentiment is is divided here. To put some numbers on Charlie's claim that maybe Republicans, conventional Republicans, aren't necessarily as plugged into this, we have some numbers. There's a CBS News poll, which requires a lot of unpacking. But on the question of, does your Republican nominee for president need to support Ukraine? um, By Republican primary voters, 58% say no. However, when you break it down by demo, um, it's close among self-identified Republicans. There's a majority against it. um, But a 46% for it, where you find the cratering is among independents who vote Republican. Independents who vote Republican to the tune of 50 points, 73 to 27, are against the Ukrainian cause, or rather they don't want their, their nominee to support that sort of thing. So we're talking about peripheral Republican voters who are marginally attached to the party, marginally attached to the candidate, and increasingly, if you look at this poll those independent voters are inclined towards Donald Trump. So they're just sort of on the margins of Republican or the Republican politics, not necessarily primary voters either. Um and that's an interesting dynamic. So do Republicans are Republicans going to allow them to be led by the nose by voters who are only
3: peripherally attached to their party and their politics?
0: Charlie.
3: I think it's going to stabilize I think that the war dragging on is going to make many people, Republicans included, less enthusiastic about helping Ukraine. But I think some of the signaling is going to shift and that they'll
0: probably balance each other out. So I think it will continue to weaken depending on events with the spring offensive obviously everyone's in favor of uh, success so if the ukrainians do do really well uh, opinion will stabilize otherwise i i expect it to, to see continuing weakening over time with that let me do a quick plug for nr plus digital subscription service at nationalview.com your way around our metered paywall. Your way, if you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads, especially the most annoying and obnoxious ads, go away. Your way to dig deeper into the NR community. If that floats your boat, you can comment on articles and blog posts. You can be invited to exclusive calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. Great deal all around, so please consider signing up today, tomorrow, or the day after, if you haven't already, and join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. So let's hit a few other things before we go. Noah, your boys are in the same football league.
2: They are of the same age, finally, that they get to play together. My oldest has been playing flag football for many years, and my youngest hadn't uh, reached the age yet, but now they're on the same uh, flag football team, and they're running plays together and passing to each other and supporting each other, and it's it's really nice to see. The, the, I'm not the biggest sports fan in the universe. Uh, we don't have a lot of games on in the house just as background noise, but um, it's a blast to watch these kids play Flag football, and it's flag football in name only. You need to; (laughs) these kids are like sixty pounds. So, to put a to take a flag off one of them means you're taking them down.
0: (laughs) Uh, Jim, the Garrity household uh, is upon this uh, great rite of passage: a teenager learning how to drive.
1: Yes, uh, my oldest is now. On the threshold, past the written test with flying colors, but I think what most of us who have driven cars would agree, the written test is not really <laughs> what makes a good driver, uh, what actually makes it. And you know, and it is kind of intimidating to be behind the wheel of several tons of steel that you know can kill people, can kill yourself if you are not operating it safely. Uh, my wife had taken our oldest just to do circles in the parking lot a few times. Well, this past weekend, I volunteered. I'm like, oh, God, I can't wait to do this. And I said, okay, let's take one more step. Let's start driving from one parking lot to another. This is at the you know nearest community college. And oh, by the way, I'm pretty sure I saw at least two other cars that looked like they had teenage <laughs> drivers behind the wheel and a nervous dad or a nervous mom behind the wheel. My my oldest did fantastic. I was thrilled. Um, and just you know, it's like okay, we had a nice empty stretch. How, how do the other of... ones do? Are, are, are you suggesting they, they did poorly? For the, any, we kept uh, a safe distance. From that. <laughs> we do, you know, you know, yeah. Um, and just you know, work doing around that kind of you know cul-de-sac area, going around a parked bus. It was not. This was not beltway traffic. I'll, I'll grant. It. I grew up in you know central New Jersey. Eh, traffic was pretty bad. I pity my kids having to learn how to drive in Northern Virginia, where traffic is terrible, and we are in, inundated. With drivers from the state of Maryland who are abysmal. I'm sorry, Maryland listeners, you are crazy. You are maniacs behind the wheel. I only, resp- I own, my only concession I will make is that I suppose if you grow up surrounded by maniacal drivers, you have no choice but to drive like a maniac mm-hmm. yourself. It's the mm-hmm. only way to survive in that type of environment. So, so perhaps it's just a you're you're a creature of your environment. But uh, but anyway, it was just kind of it was so fun. was just and also this just sense of. I don't want to say surprise, but just this recognition that, oh, I don't have a maniacal teenager. Uh, I don't have this you know danger behind the wheel. Rec- you know, recognizing the, the you know, responsibility that it is. So far, things are good. A little bit more ways to go, though.
0: So, Charlie, you flew across the pond to surprise your mom for her 70th birthday.
1: I did. I didn't
3: fly across the pond in the way Sarah Shitty would fly across mm-hmm. the pond. I was flown across the pond by a pilot whose name... I did not know, <laughs> but it was uh, terrific anyhow. Somehow, since this plan was contrived in January of this year, everybody managed to keep it a secret. I managed not to betray to my mother that I was going to come over for her birthday, and the surprise party I went to, and that was attended by all sorts of people from my mum's life, was not leaked by anyone so we had a double whammy where i showed up at the front door knocked on the door she answered it and was shocked to see me standing there and then a few hours later, we went to the hotel my parents got married in, awesome. and all of her friends and family were standing there when she entered the room. So it was a terrific That's time. awesome.
0: So did you engage in acts of deception to try to increase your sense that there's no way you could be there? Like, you know, mom, I, I got to spend a lot of quality time at the local bar doing reporting this weekend. There's no, there's, I hope you have a good birthday.
3: Well, I text her about the quality time I have to spend at the bar every morning. That's, that's a matter of course, so that one wouldn't have seemed out of the ordinary. There was a little bit of subterfuge, uh, but I didn't want to overdo it because I thought, well, yeah, if I say right. yeah, if I say, oh, by the way, on Friday I have to go, you know, to, yeah, well, yeah.
0: then it will seem too much, right? So Charlie forecast my light item. There, there's no light item that that I can have personally that can possibly. Compare with the incomparable Sarah Shundi, who engaged in her first solo cross-country flight. Which we're all a little confused by this term because it makes it sound she, you know, was flying up New York to Los Angeles, which wasn't quite it, Sarah. But you had a, 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 a an epic marker in your journey as a as a pilot.
3: I did. Thanks, Rich. Yeah, I. It's not literally across the country. You call it across country because you have to go over fifty nautical miles, um, and actually, you have to do an even longer one, which is coming up on Saturday for me. But yeah, I flew. From my home base here in Dayton, and I flew down to Ross County, which is a little south of uh, like Circleville and south of Columbus, and I did not die, and <laughs> I landed the plane awesome. twice, um, pretty successfully. So yeah, it that's was
0: pr- I, landed pretty successfully. <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I, I hope I can that's, walk that's away. real understatement. Yeah. Yes, the
3: airframe is re- airframe is reusable, and uh, yeah, I oh. was pretty excited. I I got back from it, and I'm I'm honestly still kind of in shock that I that I actually did it. So so are we? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks,
0: <Mitch. laughs> no, it's
1: awesome. That's that's very very cool. All right, so it's t- that time in the podcast for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, before I before I jump in, Rich, I just want to observe. I think the Cook family uh, should get uh, top secret security clearance. Uh, Because they can keep secrets, uh, unlike lots of other people in our government. Uh, My selection is from the attorney general of uh, Sarah's state of Ohio, Dave Yost, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Robe prosecutors threaten the rule of law. It is just pure concentrated fifty-five gallon drum of common sense, and it points out that, like, if you want to change the laws, go be a legislator. Lots of people do this every year. You, it's you know, this is your role in this. You're prosecutor. You're part of the executive branch, and your job is to enforce the law. Now, of course, we've always had a certain degree of prosecutorial discretion if the struggling single mom has a you know was racing to get back to the daycare center to pick up their kid okay you can you know not necessarily give them a speeding ticket or something like that but you know he points to the case of uh, Florida governor Ron DeSantis who suspended a Florida prosecutor who declared that he would not violate pro- violations of the Florida abortion law like, if you, you don't get a choice if you're a prosecutor. You don't get to decide, I don't like that law. I'm just not going to enforce it. That is not your role. That is not what you're supposed to be doing. And he points out that, you know, lots of prosecutors across the country refuse to prosecute thefts under $1,000, refuse to enforce immigration laws, gun laws, abortion laws, and, you know, a year ago, laws regarding masking. This is not your job. And I find myself in the utterly undesired position of quoting New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick. Do your job.
0: No, Rothman, what's your pick? Uh,
2: John McCormick. Democrats finally admit conservatives were right about the Equal Rights Amendment. It's a great piece um, where he quotes a variety of um, progressives who are essentially conceding, perhaps inadvertently, uh, points made by people like Phyllis Schlafly that the ERA would essentially authorize uh, unlimited abortions, taxpayer-funded abortions. Well, yes, Democrats admit. Uh, that it would uh, eliminate the prospect of sex-segregated spaces? Well, sure, according to Maisie Hirono, who says this would open up spaces for trans people. Um, they're making all the points that conservatives made 50 years ago without actually meaning to, and John makes a great, succinct post about that. It's worth reading.
0: Charlie?
3: My pick is Why Trump Can't Win by Andy McCarthy. Now, I don't know if Andy is right that but- Trump has probably hit a high watermark within the primaries, but I do think he is absolutely right in his long argument as to why Trump cannot win the presidency again if he's nominated. It is thorough and it is persuasive. And I would, if I were Ron DeSantis's embryonic campaign or Tim Scott's embryonic campaign, be sending this piece out to every single republican voter who should read it and internalize it
0: so my pick is jim garrity's jolt this morning on the idiocy of the biden administration vaccine mandates that are truly an artifact of the insanity of the uh, pandemic and the immediate aftermath so that's it for us you've been listening to a national Review podcast and you rebroadcast retransmission or count this game without the express written permission of National View Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the aforementioned Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to ExpressVPN and the Thinking Fellows podcast. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.